pray for God's blessing on the ministry of the Word today. Our gracious Lord, open our eyes that we might see the glories of truth, that we might see Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. Yes, even in the Psalms, which only spoke of him in shadows, in prophetic utterances. And yet, Lord, we know that he fulfilled all of what is here to which we are called with the very words of worship. I pray, Lord, that you would bless each one this day as we sit under the hearing of the word of God, that great gift you have given to nurture your church and to draw sinners to saving grace in Jesus. We pray in his precious name. Amen. You may be seated. And turn in your Bibles to Psalm 39, Psalm 39. It's remarkable, uh, the, it's exactly 100 miles from my door to your door here. And that's pretty consistent as I make, make the trip. Now going back, I'm taken in a number, number of different directions uh, at your a wonderful invitations uh, for lunch and fellowship afterwards. But be that as it may, um, I just, um, uh, we, when we come down, we hardly may run into any traffic because uh, we would like to say the streets are crowded with people going to church. Um, they're probably sleeping in their cabins or, or whatnot. Perhaps, perhaps not. But they're all wanting to get back to the cities when uh, we are traveling home. But thankfully, we are going in the correct direction (laughs) in the opposite flow of traffic. Uh, We are going to be looking at Psalm 39. And uh, I've mentioned uh, Peter Kreeft over the last couple of weeks because I was greatly moved by a recommendation by a fellow pastor in the Hinckley community to pick up this little work some years ago and read it, Three Philosophies of Life. The book contains three essays on three of the poetical books. Uh, I've mentioned those. Ecclesiastes, Life is Vanity, Job, Life is Suffering, Song of Songs, Song of Solomon, Life uh, as Love. I've also noted that we could also add, uh, if we wanted, the, the Proverbs as a life of wisdom and the Psalms life of prayer. Uh, Peter Kreeft is not the only one to recognize the breadth as well as the depth of the poetical books of the Old Testament. These, these are so important. These are vital. And I find myself, uh, the older I get in my latter years, wanting to master them in a way that I never really quite did in my younger years. Uh, A lot of my preaching was sporadic through these books, using them as references, but not drilling down deeply in them as I would like. And I'm so enjoying going through the Psalms, uh, particularly having the opportunity to go through the Psalms in the 30s and into August in the 40s, which I did last summer, as well, but we're I'm, I'm using the the pattern of following where Pastor John uh, left off, and so continuing. I'm just enjoying again 
reflecting on these very important psalms again. I'm taken by the fact, uh, and I, the reason why I've mentioned Peter Kreeft is because there's a grouping of psalms here, 37, 38, and 39, that seem to be tracking with the themes of the book of Proverbs, uh, the book of Job, and in today's message, today's psalm, the book of Ecclesiastes. Uh, They clearly are voicing the interests and the concerns of these books. I also came across a quote by J.I. Packer uh, showing the, the breadth of of um, recognizing uh, the importance of the writings. Peter Kreeft is a Roman Catholic. Uh, J.I. Packer, of course, is a Reformed Anglican, or the late J.I. Packer, who just passed away here in the last couple of years. Uh, and in his way, he treated the, the writings, or those five poetical books, as Job, How to Suffer, um, uh, Psalms, How to Worship, Proverbs, how to behave, Ecclesiastes, how to live, Song of Songs, how to love. So these overarching themes are very helpful in seeing that there's a great breadth uh, to the whole of the Christian life. And these psalms are suggestive of them, and they make us think about not just the psalms and the words that God gives us to worship, but how we can think about these in a greater way. I'd like to take a moment and read through Psalm 39, and then we will return to it with some thoughts and comments. Psalm 39, to the choir master, to, to Jeduthun, a psalm of David. I said, I will guard my ways that I may not sin with my tongue. I will guard my mouth with a muzzle so long as the wicked are in my presence. I was mute and silent. I held my peace to no avail. And my distress grew worse. My heart became hot within me. As I mused, the fire burned. And then I spoke with my tongue. O Lord, make me know my end. And what is the measure of my days? Let me know how fleeting I am. Behold, you have made my days a few handbreadths. And my lifetime is as nothing before you. Surely all mankind stands as a mere breath. Surely a man goes about as a shadow. Surely for nothing they are in turmoil. Man heaps up wealth and does not know who will gather. And now, O Lord, what do I wait? For what do I wait? My hope is in you. Deliver me from all my transgressions. Do not make me the scorn of fools. I am mute. I do not open my mouth, for it is you who have done it. Remove your stroke from me. I am spent by the hostility of your hand. When you discipline a man with rebukes for sin, you consume him like a moth. What is dear to him? Surely all mankind is a mere breath. Hear my prayer, O Lord, and give ear to my cry. 
Hold not your peace at my tears, for I am a sojourner with you, a guest like all my fathers. Look away from me that I may smile again before I depart and am no more. This is a psalm that I have often read at funerals because it provides for us a perspective for those living, a perspective on issues of life and death, how brief life really is. Psalm 39 is a, is a lament, a weeping, a crying prayer, voiced by one who feels that God has treated him more harshly than he deserves. He's either suffering under the dark cloud of mental anguish and depression or the debilitating cost of physical affliction and disease or both. Again, he does not name what is bothering him, which is most helpful for us because if he were too specific, we could easily lay it aside as irrelevant to us. <clears throat> he knows in his heart that, though, that his condition is self-inflicted due to his own sin, much like last week's psalm, Psalm 38. But he feels that God's strokes are beyond what is necessary. He's voicing these things for us to hear. He is on the verge of losing hope. We might say, blowing his lid. Having endured his share of difficulties, he is about to explode in angry outbursts over this ill-perceived treatment. But he knows this is wrong, and so he muzzles his mouth. He doesn't want to be seen losing it, particularly before his enemies, as that would give them an excuse to curse God. Instead, he prays and lays it before the Lord. And here is the remarkable shift in the psalm. He, he humbly prays that God would change his outlook and that he would not be consumed by his anger. And particularly, that God would grant him a renewed perspective, a revived hope, and restored sense of peace, inner peace. And in doing so, he voices this conviction that life is short and uncertain, that sin is his problem, and God alone is his hope, and takes a stance as a pilgrim in this present world. It has so many remarkable aspects. It is a lament of David, as we pointed out, and is, 
it's more personal than other psalms. Uh, David appears older. Perhaps the psalm was written more in the latter end of his life. He appears more reflective. He prays in a way very similar to Ecclesiastes. The book itself is for the choir master, which immediately gives us the sense it was intended to be put to music and sung by the people of God. Because perhaps all of us at one time or another have been here emotionally or otherwise at some point in our life. And if not, perhaps there will come a day. The choir master here is Jeduthun, of whom we know very little. But the end, the psalm leaves us with this, this thought that life is vanity without knowing the Lord. And that's really what the book of Proverbs or Ecclesiastes is about. I've often thought of Ecclesiastes as kind of making the argument, kind of raising the question, if God doesn't exist, what would life look like? And thus the repeated phrase, Vanity, vanity, all is vanity, life is meaningless, life is empty, gather your riches, gather your wisdom, gather all of your successes in life, build great cities and great gardens and great accomplishments, and what's it all for if there is no divine presence that it makes a difference in your life, all is vanity, it's a mere breath, it's a chasing after the wind. And David comes to this sense one more time. Life is confusing without the word of God. To be a light unto our, a lamp unto our feet and a light unto our path. And thus, as we have seen in Psalm 36, in your light, we see light. So David begins a psalm on the verge of losing it. And we see that. My heart became hot, the fire burned. <clears throat> David knew, as the family worship Bible guide says, emotional outbursts do not honor God, especially when those outbursts are directed to God. It's not that God can't take it. They're dishonoring at the outset. In the presence of the living God, we are invited to speak about just about anything. To lay our concerns before the Lord. But we do so with the reverence that is due Him. And David understands that even though he's on the edge. And the reverence that is due him sometimes means silence. The Lord is in his holy temple. Let all the earth keep silent before him. So David voices these things. I said I will guard my ways that I may not sin with my tongue. My, I will guard my mouth 
with a muzzle so long as the wicked are in my presence. He doesn't want them to hear him laying before the Lord his angry rage and disappointment. I was mute and silent. I held my peace to no avail, and my distress grew worse. My heart became hot within me as I mused the fire burned. And then I spoke with my tongue. And we're kind of left at that moment thinking, "Uh (laughs) uh-oh. But David prays in a way very different. Kind of anticipates Jesus' own silence during the time of his trial and his cross. He only said from his his crucifixion, he only spoke seven words or seven times, very short phrases, Father, forgive them, why have you forsaken me? You will be with me in paradise. Mother, behold your son. I thirst. My spirit departs. Tetelestai. One word. It is finished. And that was it. He said very little before Pilate. Nothing before Herod. He was oppressed and afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth like a lamb that is led to the slaughter and like a sheep that is before its shearers is silent, so he did not open his mouth. Peter said in First Peter chapter 2, For to you you have been called, for to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example that you may follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither deceit was found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return, but when he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. That one verse has gotten me out of so much difficulty. Or not gotten me out of it, helped me avoid it. (laughs) By not saying in any given moment what was really burning on my mind. David is seen here on the verge of losing it, but we also see him on the cusp of gaining his sanity once again. So the setup is David on the verge of losing it, but the prayer is remarkable because he turns all of his anger and diffuses it by praying to the Lord in a manner of due respect, reminding himself of truths that anger can easily make us forget. What follows is a prayer seeking understanding from the Lord in the midst of life's perplexities, sorrows, and disappointments. And that's why it is a favorite among ministers 
to share with grieving congregations at the time of bidding their farewell to their beloved. And what David receives from the Lord is not information, but he receives the grace of God in the form of a renewed perspective, a revived hope, and a restored sense of peace. Verses 4 through 6 is perhaps the the portion or among the portion that is most like the book of Ecclesiastes where he gains this new perspective. What Ecclesiastes is most helpful for us to think rightly about the world in which we live. O Lord, make me know my end and what is the measure of my days. Let me know how fleeting I am. Behold, you have made my days a mere handbreadth. And my lifetime is as nothing before you. Surely all mankind stands as a mere breath. Surely a man goes about as a shadow. Surely for nothing they are in turmoil. Man heaps up wealth and does not know who will get it. So last week, sadly, uh, a tourist in, the, in Death Valley was at the Zabrinsky Point and apparently dropped out of heat exhaustion. Don't know much of the story, but I, he probably was a man who he thought was in good physical shape, could stand the heat and the walk and so forth. He was referred to as an elderly man. And when they said his age, it was my age. I don't feel elderly, but probably most of you look at me and you say, he's an elderly man. Some years ago, I was, uh, when I went to Hinckley, we had a lot of seniors in our church um, in their 80s, some 35 people in our church. Our mean age went down over the years, but when it started, our mean age was well into the 70s at Hinckley First Presbyterian. And I asked a woman one day that I was visiting, uh, who was about 86 years old, I said, when you think of yourself, when you look in the mirror, how old do you imagine, how old do you think about who, how old do you think of yourself to be? And she said, well, laying all the aches and pains aside, I look in the mirror and I see an 18-year-old. That was very revealing to me, because even as we age, we tend, though we may complain about the aches and pains, we see ourselves as much younger than we really are. That 18-year-old is still in there. We need to get a sense of how fleeting life is. And perhaps only the 86-year-olds can really tell us. Because what they will say time and again was how fast the years ticked by. I'm only beginning now to understand this. 
next year we'll have a son who's 50 years old. That's, that's earth-shattering. The, the Bible gives us a renewed perspective on issues such as this. Make me know my end. He acknowledges his frailty. This is an important part of prayer. We're not as great as we think we may be. We would all do well to consider the brevity and the frailty of life, and if our eyes are open to the reading of Scripture, it will consistently remind us of such things. Consider the words here, how fleeting I am. Days are a mere handbreadth. Lifetime is as nothing, a mere breath. And incidentally, that's the same Hebrew word that Ecclesiastes translates in the English as vanity, habel. And the use of this word several times in this psalm is one of the reasons why it easily connects with the book of Ecclesiastes. Life is a mere Vanity, a mere breadth. Dane Ortland said from about the age 30, our bodies are powering down. I don't know that Dane Ortland is any more an authority as I am, but if you're, if you're over 30 and trying to keep pace with what you once were in your early 20s, you'll find that it's not quite as easy as it was. I mean, I've hauled deer out of the woods before, alone, but I was never so happy years later to have someone help me drag it, or to do it themselves while I walk behind. I don't hunt as much as I used to because it's a young man's sport, and it's labor-intensive. Calvin, in his remarkable little study in the Institutes on the Christian Life, chapters that have been pulled out and published, often under the title, The Golden Book of the Christian Life, six chapters or so, one of those chapters on the Christian Life is Meditate on Heaven. And this is one of the reasons why thinking much about heaven, thinking about death, because that's where we all are going and that's where we all long to be and we can smell the flowers the older we get. And there comes a time where we begin to really long for it. Now that is my end. That's what I should at least in time at times be thinking about and preparing myself for. The world doesn't do this. It's always the here and now and everything we can do to avoid thinking about what lies around the corner. And we shouldn't be afraid of that. Verse 6 here is nothing more than a summary of the book of Ecclesiastes. Surely a man goes about as a shadow, surely for nothing they are in turmoil. Man heaps up wealth and does not know who will gather it. 
Life is vanity without knowing God and Christ. Shakespeare even voiced something of this vanity without God. In his famous quote in Macbeth, tomorrow and tomorrow and tomorrow creeps in this petty pace from day to day to the last syllable of recorded time. And all our yesterdays have lighted fools. The the way is dusty death. Out, out, brief candle. Life is but a walking shadow. A poor player struts and frets his hour upon the stage and then is heard no more. It is a tale told by an idiot full of sound and fury signifying nothing. And if you don't believe in God, that is all life can ever be. If Christ is not in your life, if you're not regenerate in Him, and if your orientation is only in this world, then we can be nothing more than idiots telling some grand story that really doesn't mean anything. Blaise Pascal said, anyone who does not see the vanity of life must be very vain indeed. For David would say, for he knows our frame and he remembers that we are dust. In James, we are reminded, come now, you say, you who say, today or tomorrow we will go into such and such a town and spend a year there and trade and make profit. Yet you do do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. And coming to grips with this biblical, eternal perspective is what gave the young, beautiful queen of Persia, Queen Esther, the ability to say, and if I perish, I perish, in doing the will of God for the people of God. It's a perspective that brings revived hope. And now, O Lord, verse 7, what do I wait for? My hope is in you. Deliver me from my transgressions. Do not make me the scorn of the fool. I am mute. I do not open my mouth, for it is you who have done it. Remove your stroke from me. I am spent by the hostility of your hand. He's talking about God's judgments upon him for his sins, even though he's not naming what those sins were. When you discipline a man with rebukes for sin, you consume like a moth what is dear to him. Surely all mankind is a mere vanity or breath. Again, we see this waiting on the Lord, which is a theme that David returns to, as he does, as he did last week in Psalm 38, verse um, 14. Verse 15. But for you, O Lord, 
do I wait. It is you, O Lord, my God, who will answer. Waiting takes the long view of life. Waiting means waiting. The Christian life is not necessarily pouring out blessing after blessing in the immediate uh, aftermath of of prayers or whatever. It is we. Some of us will never see the the glorious charms of this world, and yet we have a home in heaven. He acknowledges his iniquity once again. David is always confessing his sins because he knows he is a great sinner, and but he knows he is a great savior. It is important to note that the psalmist is not doubtful regarding the Lord's sovereignty in his life. And his pathway to uh, revived hope is threefold. First, he confesses his sin and acknowledges whatever affliction he is suffering is of his own making. So again, if, if this sounds repetitive to some of the psalms we've recently visited, then it needs to be emphasized. That's the nice thing about preaching in the manner of this expository way because we hear repetitively the things that God wants us to hear time and time again. Secondly, he pleads for God's mercy in removing the stroke of affliction under which he suffers. And he righteously, rightly, and justly suffers. And yet he knows he is praying to a merciful God. And thirdly, he affirms that the Lord disciplines those he loves as a father disciplines his son. And this, of course, is picked up in Hebrews chapter 12 and beautifully uh, delineated there in verse 11 when you, a father, discipline a man with rebukes of sin, you, you consume uh, like a moth what is dear to him, but those things that are dear to him are often a stumbling block to him. Surely all mankind is a mere bread. I am encouraged by this fact. He knows our frames and he remembers that we are dust. There isn't a soul in the world that gives a rip about your frailties. Oh, we have to be strong all the time. Even when we feel weak. Restored peace. Peace is, in the Bible, is used in a number of different ways. Obviously, there is peace between God and his people, uh, which we call reconciliation, and it's, it's a gospel peace. But one of the side benefits of gospel peace is what we might call inner peace, or, or being able to contend with the issues of life because we have a God who knows our frames and remembers that we are dust and he cares for us and he is merciful toward us. 
And David acknowledges his, this reality. Hold not your peace at my tears. The psalm has had, and, and this is the wonder of this psalm, is it has led David from angry arrogance to heartfelt humility. The very place where the Lord God is now able to lift him up. This is what we call repentance. So what is here is not only a picture of repentance, but it shows virtually the psychology of repentance in these verses here. He has now come to the grips of the truth that Isaiah speaks of when, uh, when he says, For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are my ways, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. Or as Paul would say in Romans 11.33, How unsearchable are your judgments and how inscrutable are your ways. So as David loses all, he gains everything. How is, a, how is a believer to be characterized? Well, here. We can lose it. But in Christ, never ultimately. And in this case here, we see David making his way by the grace of God back to where he needs to be. And he recognizes ultimately in these latter two verses, I am a sojourner with you, a guest like my father's. He's a pilgrim. That idea of the pilgrim is the most fundamental picture of the Christian life. We who live for Jesus are all pilgrims in this world. It means that ultimately we don't really own anything that we're going to take. Naked I came into this world and naked I would depart. And yet it, that phrase ends with, blessed be the name of the Lord. We have a classic work by John Bunyan, Pilgrim's Progress, which tells the life of one traveling through this world. We sing hymns, Guide me, O thou great Jehovah, pilgrim through this barren land. We have gospel tunes, This world is not my home, I'm just a passing through. My treasures are laid up somewhere beyond the blue. The angels beckon me from heaven's open door. And I can't feel a home in this world anymore. So as we kind of wrap up these final thoughts on this psalm, we must be reminded to reflect on life's frailties and uncertainties because that's what David is patterning 
Christian spirituality around. That's what a Christian pilgrim does. They recognize life's frailties and uncertainties. Calvin would call us to meditate on heaven and to prepare our hearts for heavenly glory. We are all sojourners. We are pilgrims, as is so beautifully spelled out in Hebrews chapter 11. These were all pilgrims, but Abraham is the the quintessential um, paradigm for the pilgrim life. He looked for a city whose builder and maker is God. He pursued the promises of God, but he didn't receive anything this side of glory until he was promoted to his home in heaven. And that should be sufficient to satisfy us. Andrew Boner says, a glance at the contents shows a pilgrim spirit, one journeying through the world of vanity and praying at every step to be taught and kept in the will of God. And we realize at the end of the day that our ways are not God's ways. This is where Ecclesiastes helps us so much. That's where this psalm, written in an Ecclesiastes-type fashion. I close with a paragraph from Peter Kreef's book and his comments on his essay on Ecclesiastes. I have a friend who camps in the Maine woods each summer. One day he met an old hermit who had not lived in civilization for 40 years. He seemed uncannily wise, at least wiser than secular people in our civilization, though not maybe wiser than a Christian. And when my friend asked him where he got his wisdom, he pulled out from his pocket the only book that he had had for 40 years. It was a tattered, yellowed copy of Ecclesiastes. Only Ecclesiastes. That one book had been enough for him. Perhaps civilization is so unwise because nothing it ever nothing is ever enough for it the old hermit had stayed in one place physically spiritually explored its depths civilization meanwhile had moved restlessly on skimming over the surface of the great deeps and then he says while civilization was reading the times he was reading the eternities Psalm 39 invites us to live in light of eternity to seek him who is the eternal revelation of the Father Christ Jesus who can save to the uttermost because he always lives to make intercession for us. And there is no greater place to stand. Let's pray. Our dear Lord and our most 
Gracious Heavenly Father, we pray, Lord, that you might build within us this perspective of life, this hope, this peace in a world that is chaotic and confused and doesn't know simple words and definitions. We pray, Lord, that as they read the times, we might be embedded in eternity. For you have put eternity in in our hearts. We pray, Lord, that we might come to in touch with that eternity through Jesus, the eternal Son of God who loved us, gave himself for us, and is able to take us all the way home to heavenly glory. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.